Look around and you'll see signs everywhere. Climate change is accelerating, biodiversity is dwindling, and social inequalities are widening. Our current path is simply unsustainable, threatening the very foundation of life on Earth. We're standing at a pivotal moment in history where new ideas and alternative approaches are emerging to address these pressing issues. One such concept gaining traction is donut economics. That's our focus this week. I'm your host, Erdem Koch. And I'm Ozan Ibrahim. Welcome to Put Simply. Ozan, good to be back and good to have you back from Jakarta. Great to be with you again, Adam. And uh, yes, I spent um, most of this week in, in Jakarta and um, obviously uh, we did a podcast a few weeks ago about the uh, election. And uh, I have to say our guest got the result right, didn't go to a runoff. Prabowo uh, will be the new president to be sworn in later on uh, this year. But I think what was really great to see speaking to some of the people on the ground was um, that celebration of democracy really happened. And because there, many people were concerned that there might have been some uh, civil unrest, um, some issues with the uh, election result, it was a very overwhelming majority that Prabowo got, despite that even the people who, uh, the other parties that, that lost, um, their supporters accepted the come. And it all looks like there will be a very peaceful transition um, of power come October this year. So in a world where democracy is under threat, I guess this is fantastic to see. Gave me a lot of hope. Fantastic to join you this week to, to discuss uh, another very important topic. Indeed. And one thing that's been clear and really on our minds for quite some time is... Clearly, the systems that we have created as humans, whether it's our food systems, our supply chains, our business models, they are at a bit of a tipping point. And it feels that way through the news. It feels that way through our daily interactions. It's, it's clear that the way we have designed systems to get to where we are today is not going to help us to move forward into the future. How much does this weigh on your mind, particularly in the context of future generations, our children, etc.? The topic obviously concerns me a lot, and it's something that I do think about quite regularly. But what I suppose gives me more anxiety is how complicated the solutions are um, and how much work that we need to do to, to address some of these topics. But more importantly, how many kind of diverse parties, and you know, whether it's governments, um, the private sector, the broad community all of these different stakeholders that you need to bring together to achieve what we need to achieve to ensure that we can leave a, a world that's not just uh, habitable for for our for next generations but one that that's thriving and, and providing opportunities economically and and also from an ecological point of view in a healthy state these are super complex problems but you know, i think there's been a lot of thinking that's been done around around these issues. And, and we've got a number of different models that are being discussed and a lot of, I, I think, commitment at all levels to address this. And we need to, I think, throw out the old way of thinking and, and be open to really kind of a paradigm shift when it comes to how we address these things. Well, we have the perfect expert this week to put it simply for us. Erin Sahan is the business and enterprise lead at Donut Economics Action Lab and a senior associate at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership at the University of Cambridge. He's worked across the private and public sectors and has for a long time been involved in some incredible work in redesigning how we think about business for the broader good. He joins us from his home in Oxford, England, 
and is our guest this week on Put Simply. Ed Inch, welcome to Put Simply. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what is it that you do? Uh, hi, Ozan. Adnan. Wonderful to be with you. I'm Erin Sahan. I, I'm from Turkey originally, grew up in Australia, live in the UK. Very complicated identity, but essentially what I've done through my whole career is to try to transform business, try to get business to truly prioritize social and ecological goals and have come at it from various angles, from campaigning to partnerships to try to try and set up alternatives to the mainstream model. And I continue to do that through a couple of different hats I wear, but predominantly through the use of donut economics as a, as a new economic framework. Erich, we're going to get to donut economics and your current role there, but I want to take you back a little bit. And, and you know, you, you gave a really interesting TED Talk recently in the UK where you spoke about some of the experiences you've had over your career. Tell me about the time that, you know, fresh out of university, you've launched your own business you then enter the the corporate world, but something doesn't feel right and you start to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Th- that TED talk actually that you mentioned out of them is the the first time I tried to make my my story and my message a bit more personal. And um and I feel like I'm still at the beginning of, of telling this story because it, it's a hard one to grasp sometimes. But for me, what I've discovered over the years is that the feeling of safety was really critical. You know, when you when you come from a working class migrant family, you know, financial security is what you aspire to. So you look around and you think, how do I gain this? How do I gain a sense of security and safety? And it felt like this was the era at the end of, you know, the turn of the century where the battle of ideologies had happened and global capitalism had won. And I, I really wanted to join the winning side. I didn't want to join the losing side. I wanted to join the winning side, the one that was shaping the world that that had the power to make potentially my life better, but to, to continue to win. So as a sort of early 20s young professional, I thought this is this is the world I, I want to get into. And big business, the corporate world was was a part of that. I started by creating my own business. I was I felt quite entrepreneurial. I, I I was always interested in the way you know business models work, the way marketing structures could be um, approached, and and through that ended up studying law, and then eventually ended up ending up in the corporate world. But a lot of what actually drove that was a a desire to to feel safe and secure within the structures of this big powerful beast of multinational corporations. Having gone through some of that. I, I was also disillusioned eventually and felt that there is something wrong, there is something broken, there is something that is no longer fit for purpose in the way that these organizations are structured, the way they, they were designed for the 20th century to essentially optimize for the scarcity of financial capital. That was the goal and everything else had to fall in line with that goal. And it was clear that the 21st century was throwing up new challenges that financial markets, corporate structures, they weren't designed to pursue and handle and create solutions for them. They might do it on, on the side as a byproduct of their primary goal. But I really, I felt like I was in that moment discovering the limitations and the inappropriate design of, of finance and big business. And from that, a whole different journey kind of spawned off 
Erin, you, you mentioned being the, the child of a migrant family. I mean, do you think that was a, a major role in in driving you to be successful, in in, in driving you to, to to want to make a lot of money? And and can you give us a little bit about your kind of thoughts around how that type of dynamic plays a role in wanting to succeed effectively? I mean, for me, it was it was pivotal. I mean, it, it is the core of my story. I mean, when I when I search for a way of describing my identity. You know, Turkish Australian is one way to put it, but actually migrant, you know, the migration experience is, is at its core. I was I was six when we moved from Turkey to Australia. I, I remember that that trip and that change very vividly. I remember as a six year old in Turkey in my hometown, you know, my my, my grandfather had a, had, a, had a corner shop. My father was a teacher in the local school. My mother was a local tailor. I had cousins and aunts and grandparents everywhere. I, I was in sort of the, the bosom of safety and, and and a sense of belonging. And I remember leaving that 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 sense that was so useful for sort of early childhood and, and to be able to explore and play and be playful to then going to, to Australia where essentially we had nobody, we had no family, we, we didn't know anybody. And suddenly, in a sense, childhood ended there. In a sense, everything got serious. Everything was about survival, security, safety. And that posture kind of embedded I think quite deeply into me and it shaped everything it shaped my my decisions around what I studied and in, in how I made friends how I took risks and eventually how I shaped my career it took a very long time for me to to realize how that was manifesting in me how my parents' anxieties were actually shaping and driving all of my decisions that that I need to find my own desire and voice and, and and shaking yourself free of some of those parameters I think is a long journey maybe a lifelong journey um, but for me the migrant experience is at the heart of everything I am and everything I've been shaped as and, uh, and and it's taken a long time you know I would I have studied law if I wasn't a migrant that that really prioritized financial security would I have Instead, maybe made time for for art and hobbies. If if I felt that you know I had the luxury to do that, would I have you know given myself to other pursuits? You know, all of these things were absolutely dictated um, by my migrant experience. And I'm, I'm sure every migrant has a different story, but th that sense of belonging that sometimes gets lost when when it, when a childhood gets interrupted and and a, a seriousness and a fight for survival kind of kicks in. It shapes everything, and um, discovering that has been really liberating for me. Following your stint in the corporate world, Erin, you went and worked for the Australian government in its agency that is uh, tasked with overseeing the country's international aid program called AusAid. What was it about the experiences that you had working for AusAid that started to make you question the dynamics of business, particularly in the context of how sustainable it is in our modern world? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a really interesting era. So this was in 2008. I, I was making that transition over, you know, I did some volunteering in refugee camps. I went and did a, did a, did a master's degree to, to kind of help me pivot my career and ended up working, starting at, um, at AusAid in the beginning of 2009. And it was an era where the aid world and development world was beginning to realize business is huge. I mean, we could we could go out and do all sorts of projects and initiatives to, to feed people, to clothe people, to give people education and livelihood opportunities. But if a company just like tweaks its supply chain model, it can impact 
a million farmers tomorrow. It could double their income. It could double their security. It could change the lives of hundreds of millions of workers, potentially. It could influence policies. It can, it can change what's possible for policymakers to pursue, to, to sort of raise ambitions socially in a, in a country. It could have immense impacts. And this is just the social side I've talked about. There's a whole ecological side to this story as well. So I think everyone was waking up to this, but what do you do about it? Because, you know, these businesses operate, they've got there's a clarity to what they do because the bottom line is is the core. You know, it's it is about maximizing returns and it is about minimizing costs and maximizing sales. And all of these elements are pretty imm immovable. They're, they're just at the heart of it. It's almost scary to even question it. So what I noticed at the time was the aid world was trying to figure out how to engage with business. It's entering into some, you know, tactically helpful partnerships with companies like like mars for instance i worked on this in indonesia helping with farmer training for um, the cocoa farmers uh, to improve their yields improve their productivity eventually improve their um, incomes for their families and all sorts of other social outcomes that would that would then evolve out of that but ultimately everyone had to work within the paradigm that we have to do something that benefits the bottom line of the company, even if it's not explicit. And, and I think the aid world struggled with that. I struggled with that. I spent a number of years trying to do that at AusAid. And then when I first joined Oxfam as well, we did a bunch of partnerships within something called the Poverty Footprint Approach in, in Kenya, in, in, um, in Malawi, we worked on sort of trying to improve tea worker wages. I worked in Morocco. I worked, I was based in Asia for a time, worked in Myanmar and various other places. Um, and we tried and tried and tried. And eventually I discovered a couple of things. Firstly, business is really good at figuring out where it will make more money. And it doesn't need NGO workers to tell it, hey, look, if you treat your workers better, your reputational risk will decline. And look, if you have better relationships with your supply chain, you'll have greater security of supply. And and look, you'll have, you know, more resilience and 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 better, you know, consumer outreach. And, you know, you can come up with all these great things and go, yeah, yeah, like we've got departments that handle this. <laughs> we don't need an outsider giving some sort of generic business case argument. And it, we weren't compelling, you know, we, you might pull at the heartstrings of a few decision makers, but ultimately the structures of the business will, will do what it needs to do. Um, and at that time I started pivoting away and thinking, you know, am I, is this a helpful thing? I mean, and, and I started moving towards campaigning, putting pressure on companies. You know, we, we ran something called behind the brands campaign where in the use of, of uh, you know, using Greenpeace's language here to describe what we did, we did a rank and spank, you know, we, we, essentially assessed the world's 10 largest food companies on a range of issues, what they were doing, what their policies and their transparency were, and tried to apply pressure, brought institutional investors to bear, brought sort of consumers. We had 700,000 people sign petitions. We, we organized marches and also, you know, we created this, this pressure on them and, and that turned into some change. I thought, okay, well, this is useful because this is, this is additionality. This is stuff that wouldn't have happened if we weren't doing this work. But even that felt a little bit limited because ultimately supply chains are so opaque, I would argue deliberately opaque, deliberately untransparent, untraceable. And it was really hard to see the actual impacts on the ground. And we went, I went towards then, well, how do we build alternatives? Because these companies are built to do something that is limiting what they can actually do you know, on the social and ecological grounds. What does the alternative look like? And started working with cooperative models and social enterprise structures and, you know, discovered all sorts of hybrids of employee ownership and steward ownership and things that I'm now working on now. And that led me to a number of things where I eventually 
became the CEO of the World Fair Trade Organization, which is essentially a community of those sorts of social enterprises that are set up and structured with a different goal in mind, different power structures, different financial um, mechanisms underpinning them that allows a kind of behavior that the mainstream corporate world isn't able to pursue. And I'm a bit stuck, to be honest with you guys. I, I got stuck in that world, in that question of, well, if the 20th century structures aren't right anymore, what's the alternative? How do we build them? And I'm working on that. I think that brings us very nicely to to what's keeping you uh, busy now. And let's have a look at what kind of where your journey is today. And um, and donut economics, um, put simply, what is it, Erinch? And uh, we hear sometimes circularity being thrown around in, uh, in in some related ways. Could you kind of explain to us these two concepts and in particular go into some detail on donut economy? So donut economics we would describe it as, as a compass for human prosperity for the 21st century. So that might sound like a strap line, but let me unpack it a little bit. It basically starts with the observation that we have nine planetary boundaries that Earth system scientists have told us we must not transgress. Climate is one of them, but ocean acidification, what we throw into our soils, air pollution, freshwater withdrawals, there are nine of these boundaries. And these planetary boundaries are imbalance with one another and there are there are tipping points where if we trip over into thresholds beyond the thresholds of one it impacts the other it impacts the other the ocean acidification impacts climate change which impacts soil erosion which you know so <laughs> they have this interrelated um balance between them and, and it's very clear we need to stay within these boundaries we cannot transgress we cannot overshoot on these boundaries but what my, my colleague and good friend Kate Rayworth did when we were both at Oxfam is she wrote a paper that was published in 2012 that said, okay, well, these planetary boundaries are a nice circle on the outside, but we need an inner circle as well that tells us, hey, we can't shrink our economy below what is, are the essentials of life for people. We also need a social foundation. So there's an ecological ceiling and a social foundation. And it's between these two boundaries that lays a donut-shaped, safe space, safe and just space for humanity to thrive. So we need an economy that respects these two boundaries, that provides the essentials of life for everybody, but doesn't overshoot on the planetary boundaries. Based on that, a whole concept of donut economics came out because suddenly if that's the goal, GDP growth isn't the goal, that's the goal. GDP growth might happen or might not happen, but if we create an economy that thrives, whether or not it grows, rather than what we currently have, which is an economy that grows, whether or not it thrives, because so often growth doesn't mean thriving for society or the living planet, then we, we help humanity into the donut. And a whole bunch of things spring out from that, including two very key concepts. One is to be regenerative by design, and the second is to be distributive by design. So this is being ecologically regenerative, and second is socially distributive. On the ecologically regenerative, this is where a circular economy is a core concept, because a circular economy basically observes that we cannot just keep using materials and energy and create waste and pile on in the way that our sort of linear degenerative model of of production and consumption is created. Like the amount of waste we create, the electronics that go to waste, the, the clothing, the fast fashion that goes to waste, the amount of energy that's wasted. We need to redesign all of this so that things go into, into loops. For instance, let's design our phones and our computers in a way where they're modular. 
by design. They get, they're repairable, they're upgradable. You're minimizing and eventually eliminating the waste of those materials and resources. Let's redesign our garments so that they're easily repairable and mendable and they live far longer. Let's redesign everything in that way. And that's the circular economy. It's a big part of what being regenerative, ecologically regenerative by design is. The distributive side is also critical because on a planet where the ecological footprint goes up the minute economic activity goes up, we haven't decoupled these two. If, if there's more economic activity, there's more ecological footprint. Despite the, the attempts of circular economy and others, we're not there yet. And as a result, we also then need to distribute the, the benefits and the value created far more equitably with everybody who is co-creating that value. And that means we need to think very deliberately about who's getting opportunity, who's getting value, how does that economic activity spread that value through examples like employee ownership or through examples like profit sharing or paying, you know, a fair tax, you know, rather than just the minimum tax or paying a living wage and beyond the living wage to workers, for instance. So all of these are, are design elements and the word designs come up a lot in everything I've just said in describing donut economics because it is actually a process of inviting people to design the economy that we need rather than just assume that the economy of the 20th century, which is a really exceptional period in human history where we thought, ah, oh, everything's unlimited. We can burn through all these fossil fuels, free energy, essentially, unlimited resources and growth will trickle down. And everything will be great. Well, actually, that hasn't been the thousands of years of human history what's been reality it's not going to be the future We've, we had a really strange period in that sort of second half of the 20th century let's move beyond that let's redesign economies for the realities of the living world and the realities of our societies that are, are, are in terms of what we need so all that on waste is very interesting and i'd say inspiring but it doesn't really work does it i mean why would a laptop manufacturer or a clothes manufacturer want to produce products that don't require you to come back in a certain period of time to buy the newer version or the updated version. I mean, what you're saying, doesn't it go against business models? It does go against what the way we have currently set up businesses, you know, what they desire out of that structure, out of that design of the business world, because you make more money from selling things that break down every few years and the consumer has to come back to you to buy another item make more money through fast fashion where on a whim people wear something once or twice and you sell them another thing it's costly to create circular loops these biological and technical materials that you have to take back again and recycle reassemble it costs money to redesign everything it costs money to to eliminate waste there are some savings often from the waste and i think we spent like the first i don't know 10 or 20 years of this sort of, if we call it a sustainability revolution that started in the, in the early 2000s. We spent the first 10 or 15 years maybe figuring out where the low-hanging fruit was. We go, oh, actually, if we keep the lights off for a bit, we save some money. If we use less water, we save some money. We've, you know, I, by the way, on the site, I also teach at Cambridge. I teach sustainability at the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership. And a lot of all my students are corporate leaders. And I'm hearing it from them now constantly they're like we, we pick the low-hanging fruit we're out of it the next bits are going to cost money the next bits are going to hit revenue the next bits are going to hit margins next bits are going to mean we have to renegotiate with share markets and with other financiers like private equity or venture capital um what it is that they expect from us in terms of returns and as a result we don't do them 
because these structures are immovable. These structures don't negotiate. They say, fine, if you're not going to deliver me the kind of growth and returns I want, I'll take my capital out and I'll put it somewhere where it will. And that means we've trapped ourselves in a system that is incapable of making the changes anywhere near the level of urgency that's that's needed. Um, and we are just hoping that at some point someone's going to figure out, ah, we'll make more money by making these changes. From what you're saying, Erinch, um, it, it seems like quite a, a a mindset change is required. I suppose my question is twofold. How do you take business um, on this journey? What do you need from the business world? But equally as important, how do you get regulators and, and I suppose those within government who are responsible for designing industry policy, economic policy, etc.? How do you get them across the line on donut economics? It's a tough slog, Ozan. <laughs> the, the change we need is scary. It's overwhelming, you know, and I sit in these rooms with people who feel a sense of despair often when we sit down and map out what's actually needed because we've all gotten quite good at celebrating the incremental low-hanging fruit, you know, the stuff that's accessible and it's easy and it's win-win. Um, but when we map out actually what's needed now, it, it, it overwhelms people. It overwhelms policymakers. It overwhelms business leaders investment leaders but what's needed is first a sense of urgency and a sense of honesty that we're not going to get there with win-wins that satisfy the financial expectations of 20th century corporate and financial design once we we accept that then we, we move into right so how do we redesign this financial and corporate world we inherited from the 20th century and then you start to open up possibilities. Then you start to redesign companies and say, okay, well, we need nature on this board. This boardroom is putting pressure on, on the CEO and on the executive team to grow at a certain rate. That's going to have certain costs. If nature had a voice on this board, suddenly we can we can change the, the dynamics of decision-making. So companies like Faith in Nature, uh, you know, a meaningfully-sized um, company in the cosmetics and soap-making business, Put nature on the board. They they took the organization lawyers for nature, gave them a board seat, independent, able to access all the documents, able to access everything that regular board members can access, and, and they're shaping decisions on the board. Other companies are converting to different ownership structures. So if you look at Patagonia, for instance, what the ownership did was transfer into a different ownership structure that says, right, we're going to have two kinds of share classes. We're going to have some share classes where they hold all the voting rights and the others that hold all of the dividend rights. So you separate money and power. Those who benefit from the returns don't have the ability to push the company to maximize its returns at, at, at any cost. And they, they embedded purpose into that. This is basically the steward ownership structure. We're seeing companies convert employee ownership models. In, in fact, in the UK, where I, where I reside, it's growing at 37% per annum. And, um, and this links to your question around policymakers. The reason employee ownership is growing at 37% per annum is that all of those businesses set up by the baby boomers, those people are retiring. And most of them, many of them have set up established founded companies that are now significant in tens of millions, for instance, in terms of turnover. What's well, they're selling it to their workers because there's a tax advantage. You don't pay capital gains tax in the UK if you sell your business to your employees. That's absolutely supercharged employee ownership as, as a model that changes the decision-making structure that changes the very you know incentives and culture of all of these companies when they convert to employee ownership 
social enterprise, similar things are happening and policymakers are saying, hey, let's use public procurement. So the government of South Korea has got a requirement that every single public servant that is doing that is involved in public procurement, which is often, you know, like a third or a quarter of the economy in some places, well, they have to demonstrate how they've reshaped the procurement process to make it easier and more accessible for social enterprises, enterprises that are reinvesting majority of their profits back in the social purpose. Um, you, you're starting to see other kinds of models of giving funding and access to finance to entrepreneurs who can set up their business in this way. And the reason I'm describing this kind of policymaking is because is the final point on this question, Ozan, which is that there's going to be policies that are going to regulate the market to kind of level the playing field to make sure people and the businesses that are taking stronger action aren't disadvantaged. And you impose a carbon tax, for instance, you impose costs for, you know, pollution, for human rights violations, you regulate this stuff better. Alongside that market regulation, you also need to, to re-engineer, redesign the companies and go, well, these don't need to just be a service of finance. And let's have employee ownership models incentivized. Let's have social enterprises incentivized. Let's bring in a new legal form for steward ownership, this sort of foundation structure ownership that I described Patagonia has taken up, which will be coming in in Germany. The new ruling coalition has got that in their manifesto to create a steward ownership legal form so companies can register in this way. So we need we need these two kinds of policy changes, one around regulating the market, but that's not enough. We also need to change the very deep design of businesses so that they are leaning into those regulations, not lobbying against them, not trying to undermine them, not looking for loopholes um, and not relocating sometimes to avoid them. But they are in line with those regulations because they believe in human rights. It's embedded in their board structure, in their financial model. They believe in ecological um, regenerative economics. So they're, they're trying to figure out how to bring a circular economy and other concepts into their model. If we redesign companies and regulate together, we suddenly start to see the two sort of humming in the same direction. They're starting to, to, to positively reinforce each other and the regulations become much more effective because you've also changed the deep design of companies. They're in line with the, the very goals of those regulations. So playing devil's advocate a little bit here, it's clear that the business world needs to change. But what about the business world where companies are involved in controversial or harmful products. I'm thinking about, you know, oil companies here or sugar companies, etc. products that we know by design are not good for the planet or for human consumption or whatever. How much do they need to be part of the solution? How much do we need to allow them to be part of the solution? I mean, there's, there's a lot of them, right? There are many, you're right. Um, you know, I was reflecting recently how much of our economy is based on some form of human addiction, you know, so much of the products they take away sort of individual agency right to to make decisions and addiction is very um you know from sugar to social media to whatever you know it, it, alcohol like it, it it links you in and, and you lose your sense of control and and what a powerful way to maximize shareholder returns um it's very hard to compete with that to sort of propose uh, a, a transformation of the business model of for a company that is built around something that is hey working for them and they're very happy with the status quo and i think a lot of this has to be through regulation a lot of this has to be through you know the state power to say this is this is not something that we need to be using scarce natural resources 
to produce things that then create social harm. Like you're kind of, it's lose-lose, you know? Like this is, they might say, look, we create livelihoods, but hey, like when people stop buying whatever it is that, that you're selling that is harmful and they buy something else, that something else will have livelihoods as well. You know, the, the, the alternative, the counterfactual will create other livelihoods. The use of those natural resources, whether it's land or air or whatever it might be, other materials, for things that are socially beneficial will also create livelihoods. So there will be, a, a, I think, a transition. It's always a tough transition. But for companies that feel like, hey, we don't, we can't belong to this vision of the 21st century economy that is ecologically regenerative and socially distributive, well, you might not need to exist. And that's fine. Like companies come and go every day. Like companies get bankrupt. You know, you, we can all think of iconic 20th century companies that are no longer with us. You know that that are being sometimes their brands are being flogged off on high streets around the world still, but the company's not there anymore because it you know it, it outlasted it couldn't outlast you know history and and it no longer is fit for purpose for the economy that's needed. That's fine. I mean, we don't need to be sentimentally connected to an institution. It's the people that are impacted, and it's the societal kind of value of it that matters. NH, um, as an economics graduate, I find it difficult to imagine a world without measurements such as GDP and, and GMP and all of these uh, great economic terms. In your ideal world, if we get to where we need to get to and all end up living in a donut economy, what replaces GDP? What type of measurements do we talk about when we're looking at economic either progress or, or going backwards in terms of economic growth? What will it be called in your ideal world? It won't be a singular figure. That will be the most um, important thing to digest. And I, I, I see the power of having a single figure that everyone focuses on. And then that single figure represents everything. It says, okay, well, that's the thing that's a proxy for this other thing. It's a proxy for livelihoods. It's a proxy for, you know, progress and, and, and society that's thriving. And my challenge to that would be then if it's a proxy for these other things, it hasn't been a good proxy. It's been actually a destructive proxy often on particularly on ecological issues, but on social issues and inequality as well. Then let's all agree that these other things are the things that actually matter. And GDP is just a mere proxy that we had hoped would represent them, but no longer does. So when we pivot to what actually matters, we, we start to come across really much more, much richer ways of encapsulating the goals of economics and, and our societies. And of course, we can start with the donut. You know, the nine planetary boundaries are incredibly effective ways of galvanizing action. Are we do, conducting activities that are staying within the boundaries? We can, we've got national donuts that we've created with the University of Leeds that show, by the way, every country is not in the donut. Um, the global north countries that we might all look up to across Europe, including Northern Europe, but Canada, Australia, US, all of them are in huge overshoot of their fair share on the planet's boundaries and falling short sometimes as well the social foundation. And, and that the social foundation actually is a huge shortfall for the global south, who isn't using their fair share of their, the planetary boundaries. So overall, we can already do this. We, we've crunched numbers. We've looked at you know, the social goals and the, and the ecological goals per country. If the goal is then, let's get every country into the donut. Then we start to move along. I'll add one thing. My, my very good friend, Catherine Trebek, who helped set up something called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and is an amazing thought leader, once gave me an idea that, that has stayed with me, which is that you know GDP is 
pretty poor measure for the things that actually matter. But actually, one really interesting better proxy is girls on bikes. If we measured in a place the amount of the proportion of girls, and a couple of us are fathers of, of, of girls here, the amount of girls who are cycling around that neighborhood, it's actually a pretty good proxy for lots and lots of things. It's a pretty good proxy for safety, for security, for empowerment, for opportunity, for sense of community, all these other things that matter really significantly. Um, so if I had to pick one, I would pick girls on bikes. But of course, it's going to be bigger and bolder than that. And, and the donut actually provides a pretty useful set of metrics that at a national level, we can say, are you in the donut or are you not? You've outlined very clearly the tough job that you have um, in, in convincing policymakers, business, et cetera. But what about when it comes to trying to get the ordinary person on the ground to get them to understand what I would say are quite difficult concepts? One of the concerns that I've had for some time is when we're discussing various different parts of sustainability, it's very difficult to get people to come on the journey with you and take them with you. Yeah and really develop political will, uh, because let's face it, policymakers, politicians are only going to act if there's the political kind of will or the, the, the burning platform. I suspect you spend quite a lot of time also thinking about how you educate the, the broader public around some of these issues. Absolutely. I mean, this needs to be a groundswell um, of support. I mean, what's been interesting is um, the work I've described to you that I'm doing is is based on the business world, but the broader work that my colleagues do at Donut Economics Action Lab is really empowering change makers of all kinds to, to galvanize communities. To, to you know, so there's all sorts of activities people are running in, in dozens of places around the world, trying to encapsulate how far we are overshooting planetary boundaries and how far we're falling short on life's essentials, essentials for hundreds of millions of people, for instance. So a lot of it is there's no alternative to this being, you know, a bottom-up grassroots mechanism. And that means we have to make the ideas accessible. And we also have to help people embody them, you know, really feel it. So we, we, there's an activity that, you know, these thousands of people in our community are running now with their communities where they get a rope and they, they all sort of hold the rope together and go, this is the planet's boundary, right? Like, let's try to feel what it feels like to be, in overshoot of it. Let's think of what, what our grandchildren would say to us when they realized we knew that we were in overshoot. We knew that we were, you know, cutting off their ability to live on a safe planet. They knew that we were creating dangerous levels of inequality that are destabilizing societies, politics, economics, our ability to make the changes needed. And we, what do we do about it? You know, so we're trying to, to both educate, but also unlock an emotional connection as humans and to, to feel what that feels like. So look, we've got a whole host of tools and activities that community organizations are running. Some of them are doing this like at a neighborhood level. And as a result, they've like, you know, kicked into doing collective action on renewable energy, you know, cause it's so much, it makes so much more sense to take action if you're putting up solar panels and to do it as a whole street, you know, so much cheaper, so much more accessible, it, you know, drops the, the, the price and the convenience factor to much more accessible levels. They're doing this on sort of home insulations. They're doing this on all these sorts of measures. And there is really no substitute because, you know, the minute we just leave people at that very individual level, they you feel helpless. You feel like you don't matter, that actually this is just a foregone conclusion. Whatever's going to be will be. But the minute people start taking action locally together and they, they feel a sense of community, what we end up unlocking is that actually what 20th century economics told us about, you know, rational economic man who was 
always thinking about his best interests and, and being sort of selfish and greedy. Well, actually, that doesn't tell the story of humanity. That's only one part. We also have this ability to cooperate, for mutualism, to be kind, to be generous. And once we start unlocking that, we start to shape, reshape what people think of themselves and what's possible for humanity. And that can only be embodied when they're a part of it. So this community action is going to be so critical. It's happening in cooperatives as they expand. It's happening in employee ownership, you know, as, as it expands. When people are a part of this, they go, well, why would I ever work for a company that isn't like this? And I think a tipping point is coming. And the tipping point science tells us it's 20, 25%. You know, once we get to a point where these ideas are serious enough, everyone piles in and goes, well, if this is viable, it's definitely desirable. Let's, let's make this a reality and and the politics shifts that's that's the theory that we're working with we just got to build up to that tipping point and we have to do that through a bit of an embodied experience of, of people feeling and sensing the reality that we're building this new economy that has to arrive one last question erinch before we let you go are you hopeful can we save the planet and can we save society i'm hopeful I have to be. <laughs> and anyone that works in this space, I think, has to manage their own emotional journey because there are many moments of despair. There are many moments where you feel challenged. But ultimately, I, I believe that people have the capacity to cooperate. People have the capacity to act collectively. And people are much more than these greedy individualistic versions of ourselves that 20th century economics told us is all we can be. And I see that. I see that in people. I see I have the privilege of working with communities and groups around the world who demonstrate this, who, who do it selflessly, you know, and and I think there's a human ingenuity and innovative nature that we can galvanize here as well. We just have to do it for a purpose that is different than extractive to be in service to extractive finance. If we do it in service to ourselves and our communities, then I think we get there. The, the vision ex exercise I do with, with any kind of leaders that we do workshops with, and I've done now workshops with about over 500 business leaders, we ask them to imagine the economy of the future and we ask them to come up with what they need to do today to make that reality happen. And they come up with things that aren't, that feel really difficult, that feel sometimes out of scope for, for, their, for their company. And then we ask them to put themselves in the shoes of other people and our ecology, our living world, and ask themselves what they what they need to do. And then they come up with the steps. So we have a capacity for empathy that I see every day to encapsulate what does it feel like to be a, a worker in a supply chain? What does it feel like to be the river? What does it feel like to be the soil? And what does it feel like to be the future generation? What will be your excuse to your grandchildren for not taking these actions now? You knew about it and you didn't act. That galvanizes people often. And that gives me hope that they have an ability to grasp this and hopefully a courage to, to start acting and come up with, you know, innovative ways that 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 won't come from me. They'll come from them, because I think when we give people permission to be designers of their own business, of their own financial world, of their local economies, they come up with amazing ideas. And we just need to unleash that creativity and that sense of playfulness and that sense of joy in designing the economy of the future. Well, you've done a great job, Erin and I think we can talk to you for hours, but we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us here on Put Simply. My pleasure. Thank you. That, that was great, Erin. Very inspiring. Thank you, Ozan.
And that's been this week's episode of Put Simply. I've been your host, Erdem Koch. And I'm Ozan Ibrishim. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcasts platform and follow Oroku Group on LinkedIn for all the up-to-date information. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>